Audi. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and it's the Big Travel Podcast, and it's wonderful to have you listening. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Our guest today is the fabulous Ches Nuki Burden, a journalist and best-selling celebrity biographer for the likes of Adele, Amy Winehouse, Justin Bieber, Simon Cowell, Michael Jackson, Paris Hilton, Brad and Ange, remember them, and many more. As a widely published columnist, he's travelled far and wide and is here to tell us all about this. Please welcome Mr. Ches Nuki Burden. Where should we start? You're a prolific writer, written many biographies of celebrities. Tell me a little bit about those. Well, I started off writing for lots of magazines like Time Out, Loaded, Attitude and, and The Big Issue. And one of the things that I really enjoyed writing about was people, working out where people came from and their backstories and also doing interviews as well and sort of finding out from famous or interesting people all about their lives. And then the other thing that I noticed when I was a journalist, well, which I still am, but when I was just a journalist, my editors always said, you write really, really, really fast. Like, good stuff, hopefully, but but really, really quickly. And so I thought I needed to find an area of the industry that that was an advantage on. And obviously books is a great advantage to write fast because you have to write a lot to fill it. So I think my favourite probably of the biogs, the Adele one really, really sold well and she was lovely to write about because she's very different to most celebrities. Nowadays, a lot of pop stars, their actual music is a tiny part of what they do. It's all about in between the albums and the singles, promoting themselves, you know, having their My Rehab Hell interviews in magazines and stuff and keeping themselves out there. Whereas with Adele, she just disappears. She's just like, I've done my album, I've done my tour, I'm now going to completely disappear until the next album comes out which makes her, in my opinion, like, you know, very admirable, but also really interesting. Like, you know, her life is not all out there already. These are unofficial biographies, so it means that they, and you're not sitting down and interview them. Mm. How much support do you have from them, if anything? Do you have any contact with, say, well, Adele? One or, not Adele, but one or two of the other ones, the subjects of the book did get involved, but quietly, because really what they want to do is they want to make sure that the book comes out accurately, but they don't want any mention of that anywhere because it lessens their chance of writing their own book later on. They can't say telling their story for the first time if they've authorised a biography five years ago. So you can sort of get help from some of them. But mostly, yeah, it's, it's a, a thing of going through all the existing material, speaking to whoever you can and just trying to find out what the real story is. But I should say with the biographies, I, and I'm quite open about this, I only really write positive ones. 
I write for the fan bases of the people. I'm not interested in, you know, muckraking or stitching people up or anything like that. Although those biographies do sell very well, I've noticed. Uh, it's just not really my, my style. One of the a really great and travel-related facts about one of your biographies is that your biography of Simon Cowell is at the top of the list of <laughs> abandoned books in Britain's Travel Lodge hotel chain. About 20,000 books have been left in various travel lodges all over the UK, and about 500 of them were your biography of Simon Cowell. I would just wish the sales reflected this stat. <laughs> no, it did sell quite well, that one. I genuinely don't know whether these stats are, whether they just pick a, a, a book that will just sound funny in that. It's all, it's all good PR, so... Yeah, it's really good PR, and also it means, if it is true... It means that people are actually buying the books yeah. and reading them because nobody abandons a book that they haven't read. They've abandoned a book because they've read it. That's right, yeah. That's what I'd like to think mm. anyway. Yes, we'll say that. <laughs> so it's about travel, this podcast. And I'm going to start with Israel, actually, mm. because I know you've written about the gay scene in Israel, yeah. particularly, and Tel Aviv and how vibrant and exciting that is. Tell me about your connection with Israel. Well, it's an amazing place. I, I went there in 2006. I'd always wanted to go because after 9-11, I read a lot about the Middle East conflict because I became really interested in it, like a lot of people were. And all the politics and the sort of violence of it all, sort of, I didn't find that you know, interesting or fun to, to think about. But what I did like was some of the sort of reportage and some of the articles and books I read about life in Israel, for instance, like, you know, queuing up for a falafel stand, you know, in the searing heat. I just loved this idea of this country and all the street names, you know, and signposts pointing to places that are mentioned in the Bible. I just found it really funny. So Julie Birchall, who I think you know as well, said to me, I can get you a free trip. So she introduced me to like the tourist board and basically you just go and get a magazine commission and they'll just arrange everything and send you over there. So I went over there and the only magazine that would commission me to write about Israel was Attitude, so to write about the gay scene in Tel Aviv. So I called the article the Six Day War, which for people who know that one of the biggest wars in Israel history is the Six Day War, is a brilliant headline. For everyone else, it's like, what do you mean the Six Day War? I was there for six days, which helps. And yeah, the gay scene in Tel Aviv is amazing. Uh, I mean, it makes Soho you know, here look like Maidenhead. You know, I think it really that's a bit does. unexpected for a lot of people. It I mean, is, I yeah. have been to Israel, but... Um, yeah. I, I didn't expect that either, actually. No, it is amazing. You know, I went onto MySpace at the time. Facebook wasn't really a thing. And I, I just searched for gay people who lived in Israel. So I just did all of these interviews with local Israeli gay guys, Arab, Jew, Christian, all, all sort of different types of people. And what was quite funny was, I don't know if you had this when you went, but the security airport when you leave is really, really hardcore. I got questioned for like two and three quarter hours. Teach me to turn up so early for flights. But... Um, and I remember when they said, OK, so, you know, if you're a journalist, where's your notebook? And I, luckily I did have a notebook. And um, so I handed it over and it was just full of these scribbled down names and numbers that I'd scribbled down off MySpace before I left England to go over there. And they were flicking through them and they were going, who's this? And I was going, well, I was trying to explain to them. I got these numbers off MySpace. So they're not friends, they're people I interviewed. They go, but how do you know these people? And then they turned to the page where it had, I can't remember the name, whether it's like Abdul or Mohammed, like one of the Israeli Arabs who I'd interviewed. And they said, who is this guy? And I said, oh, it's just, again, someone off MySpace. They said, did you meet him while you were over? And I said, yeah. And I just suddenly saw in their eyes, I thought, that's got me another hour of questioning. Because they, they genuinely didn't understand what I was saying. But anyway, it is a lovely country. And I've been back four or five times since. Then I've been to Jerusalem, which is obviously, you know, a different sort of vibe. My favourite place in Israel is Safat, it's called, or Safed. Again, with everything in Israel, depends which side of the fence you're on, but that's a town in the north of Israel, 
what Jerusalem is for Christianity, Judaism and Islam, Safat is for Kabbalah, for the mystical side of uh, Judaism. And there's a big artist colony out there. And it, it, it's a pretty crazy place in a really cool way. So if anyone ever does go to Israel, it won't be mentioned by most of the tourist places, but do go up to Safed, even just for a day, because it's really nice. They know how to party, don't they? They really yeah. do. I went to Elat and then actually got a boat from Elat down the Sinai Peninsula, down the Red Sea, and came back into Israel from Egypt overland and crossing the border. That was pretty scary. Yes. And they took our passports for maybe an hour. And then even leaving from Heathrow to, in London to Israel, they questioned us. They said, I was with my boyfriend at the time, and they said, well, why are you guys not married? I was like, well, I don't know. It yeah. hasn't happened. And the lady in front of us, they were like, well, what's your father's name? What's your grandfather's name? And the, the security is actually, yeah. uh, a, a, it's quite scary when you, you're is, going yeah. through. So what else happened when you were there? What's the, what's the best thing, do you think? Well, I just, I found the people just really, really funny because they're called the Sabra, and the, the, they called themselves the Sabras, people who were born in Israel, called Sabras. And Sabra is like a cactus fruit in Israel that's really, really prickly and sour on the outside. But if you get through to the middle bit, it's really sweet. And that's what they call themselves, because that is what a lot of Israeli people are like. You know, they're very, they're, they're tough. You know, whatever people think about the conflict, it's like there's no doubt the effect it's had on them. You know, around 2000, 2001, they were having seven sevens nearly every day, which in a country the size of Wales and with such a small population, you know, everybody knew people who were being blown up. So I do find them like, I like that side of them, particularly with, particularly with the women, I have to say, because I've never really met women who were that, tough and hard on the outside in fact the only one I had met in England who was like there was an Israeli woman and but I like that and I like the fact that you know you can press the right buttons and you can bring out that real softness you know with the women it's easier you know you just act like a little sort of lost boy bring and I can bring that side out easy and you bring that side out and you get that I also liked like you said they know how to party what I used to find funny was I'd be sitting at like 10 o'clock at night chatting to someone either in a bar or on the beach and it'd say uh not they do the accent. He'd say, well, so what are you doing tonight? And I'd be like, this. This is what I'm doing. He said, yeah, but what are you doing tonight, tonight? And I was like, this. And he's like, yeah, but what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, what are you doing later? And I said, well, what are you doing tonight? I thought you were with me. He goes, yeah, but I just wondered, do you want to come to a party? And I was like, well, well where is it? And he'd be like, in a town, an hour and a half's walk away, starting at two in the morning. And they were just going to walk there, go there, and then go to work the next day. And I'd be like, no, I think I'll go back to my hotel and get into my complimentary uh, dressing gown. Thank you. But, um, I'd be tempted to go. I'd be tempted yeah. to go, definitely. So there's no sort of conflict then that you saw on the streets, you know, of, like you said, in the gay scene, mm. people from all religions. Well, this was the thing. I mean, I met this, you know, this Israeli Arab guy. And again, whatever, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, you know, trying to whitewash any problems that there are there with integration and with the conflict itself. But yeah, I met this Israeli Arab guy and he said to me, that if he didn't have the Tel Aviv scene to go to, the gay Tel Aviv scene to go to, that he probably would have killed himself. And that if his family and neighbours knew that he was going there, then they would have killed him anyway. But he said in the gay scene, there was complete acceptance and complete you know, harmony that nobody really cared what you know, your background was. The fact is that you're just there to party together as, as gay people, I suppose. So, yeah. What do you get a sense? I mean, homosexuality is legal in... Israel, yeah. it's not punishable by anything, is it? It's not. Oh no, 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 no. And there's loads of laws protecting. There's like some of their laws are actually more advanced than ours in terms of civil rights for gay people. Yeah. So it was just his family that would be. Yeah, yeah, just it. just his local community. Yeah, yeah. I get just the sense religious. That, yeah, basis, people are yeah. very religious. People are very traditional. You know, sort of outside the cities, maybe, yeah. and outside the sort of youth 
culture. Yeah, and I mean, the accusation usually that's made is that, you know, that Israel uses this to whitewash, you know, its conflict with the, the Palestinians. And I, I sort of my point of view on that is like, yes, they do and no, they don't. I mean, no, they don't, as in, no, you're not going to have, you know, a Jewish state creating a liberal attitude towards gay people just in the hope that it stops the world from noticing what's going on with the Palestinians. That would be a really dumb thing to do. On the other hand, yes, they do, because having this pre-existing liberal approach to gay people, they then see that and go, yeah, let's use it. Every country in the world uses PR, and that's one of the ways they do. And I don't think that's, there's anything scandalous in that. I think it's quite typical of every country in the world. You use what you've got, don't you? Yeah. Sort of countries and people, politicians, everything. So is travel important to you? And, and where else have you been? Well, when I was young, I went to Australia. This was like two very you know, important trips in my life, I think. When I was six years old and then when I was 15 years old, my mum took me and my brother to Australia. First time for eight weeks, next second time for five weeks, because that's where all her family lives. And those were big trips. I remember particularly like, or I can see the influence, particularly the first one. I was six years old. I remember getting on this Qantas plane. And I couldn't believe it took two days or however long it was, uh, over a day, 24 hours plus to get... I, I, I couldn't... My mum kept saying it to me. I was like, I can't be sure obviously made a mistake. And I remember being so bored, so bored on the plane. For about an hour, of course, I was really excited. We're up in the air, my ears were popping. And, you know, I didn't... I'd never seen anything like this. But then after about an hour, I was like, this is really bad. And I kept reading the card in the seat in front with all the safety stuff. And I'm sure that that has made, that certainly instilled an anxiety around flying that took about 20, 25 years probably to fully shift because I was just sitting there for 24 hours on this plane looking at these badly drawn cartoons of people skidding off the plane. And I was like, does that mean this is going to happen for definite? Is this something I have to rehearse? Is this how we get off? We have to skid into the sea and swim back. There's your life jacket. Yeah, and the, the, the food was dreadful and all that sort of stuff. But I remember that first, the details of that first holiday, not so much. When we went, when I was 15, we went back. And I just remember hanging out with, you know, my uncle John, who was just like such an icon and such an idol for me because he was such a funny guy. He, you know, got us hammered, drove us around, and we had two uncles there, and I remember one of them, he's, they're both, I love them both, but one of them was very straight-laced, and he was pointing out where the city boundaries were on a municipal basis, and that's the central bank. Fascinating and to that. a 15-year-old. <laughs> and then the other one, we went out later, he just said, right, just cracked open a beer for each of us, and he said, all right, that's where the prostitutes hang out, that's where this, and... Uh, Equally wrong, you know, could yeah, they not have yeah, met in the yeah, middle, yeah. the two uncles, the forces of good and evil. Yeah. So I remember that second trip very well. Uh, we stopped at Thailand on the way, all got really bad food poisoning, which, you know, at the time was no fun. But looking back, I find really funny because my brother decided to go scuba diving one day with food poisoning. I mean, that, so that went all kinds of wrong. And I think, like with a lot of the good things that happened in my life, I took it for granted a bit too much. And I, you know, looking back now, I wish that I'd realised how lucky I was. You know, some people never get to go there in a lifetime. So to have gone twice in your childhood was a big thing. That when I was a kid, maybe not at 15, yeah, nobody went to Australia. And people, yeah. when I was a kid, people didn't even go to Disney as they do yeah. now. People went to the south of France and drove down there or yeah. went camping. That was, that's quite a, a big trip, age 15. Also in the time, and you and I are of a similar age, that would be the time when Australia was really cool. You know, the yeah. neighbours and home and away possibly yes. at that point. Australia was like, everyone in England was walking around with a slight Australian accent. That's so right. to actually go to Australia, that must have been very... Cool. Well, I had to, when I came back, I remember a typical of kids and typical of the type of kids, that, the kid that I was and the kids that I hung out with at school, one of the first things people said to me was, 
what's going on in Neighbours there, because obviously it would be ahead. And I said, right, Neighbours is like this far ahead. Home and Away is this far ahead. And there's the Sullivans. And I love the Sullivans. Yeah, and it's got a different beginning. It hasn't got the same beginning and all this. And everyone was like mind blown by it. Because I used to love the Aussie soaps. I was obsessed with, um, yeah, Neighbours. Cell Blockade. Cell Blockade. Well, that was my favourite. I yeah. loved that. Lizzie Birdsworth, what a hero. It was a late night thing, wasn't it? Yeah. When I was clubbing, in my clubbing days, it was back to watch Cell Block yeah. H at midnight or something like that. It yeah. was really, the scenery was almost falling down. <laughs> and, but that song, that song oh, about yeah. oh, bringing your roses, that was brilliant. Has work taken you to many places since then or has it all been pleasure? Well, it's, both? I guess the main one has been the Israel trip. And that was, I mean, it was, it was interesting writing while on holiday sort of thing because I did see it as a holiday but I remember on the last day sitting on a on the balcony of a hotel in Tel Aviv overlooking the sea with my laptop starting to write the intro for my piece and I do remember thinking you know for someone who'd grown up or who'd served my apprenticeship as a journalist interviewing footballers this suddenly felt much more grown up and much more real I sort of felt like I should have a sort of a special hat and I should have a TV crew with me, you know, because I suddenly felt like a travel writer. But um, It is living the dream. It yeah. is. And I, I used to do two overseas travel trips a month for Sky and various magazines. And, you know, you are sitting there thinking, I'm a travel writer. I've got a yeah. laptop. I've got a camera. You know, this is what a lot of people really, really want to do. It's really hard, though, not to fall into cliches when you do it. I remember, like, before I went, Julie Birch was shouting at me saying... If you dare say Tel Aviv is a city of contrasts, I'll like never speak to you again. She says that's what everyone says about anything. And gem, I hate, yeah. if I see it's a gem of a place, yeah. I just want to bang my head against whatever I'm reading. And so I was determined not to do it, and I always try and avoid any sort of cliches in my writing, but you just constantly fall into it. I think nestled. I had to rewrite it. Yeah, yeah, bustling, bustling. Bustling, nestled gem of a... <laughs> City of Contrasts. And then I remember one day I went over to interview David Beckham in Madrid. And that was quite funny because it was just all within a day. It's actually kind of, I'd had to be mega pushy to get it. I, I asked for the interview in February. The big issue came to me. They said, could you get Beckham for our World Cup cover in May or June? And I was like, well, yeah, I'll try. So I rung up the agent who I sort of vaguely knew because I'd interviewed Beckham before. And I said, Can I? And he said, sorry, there's no way. Like, everything's booked up. You know, there's politics involved. If they go and add an extra person to their list, then all the people they've turned down will then say, well, what's going on? And I said to him, I said, well, I'm going to do this interview. I was determined to do it. I should just say that The Big Issue is a magazine sold by homeless people in the UK. And most of the proceeds, am I right, go to the people who are selling it? Yeah. They sell it on the street. That's right. The thing about The Big Issue is you put a big cover on and you materially help the lives of the homeless people that, that week in a big way. You put a rubbish cover on and they will have less food in their belly. And so there's a big responsibility there. And Anyway, in the end, I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and I got the interview. I remember flying over there and when I got off the plane and got into a taxi to where we were going, uh, the guy, the inside of the car was just Real Madrid pictures, Real Madrid scarves. He had a Real Madrid commentary, even though there David wasn't Beckham's a match. Car. No. <laughs> no, no, this is a, <laughs> taxi, <laughs> no, this is a taxi driver. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he, <laughs> and he, he was crazy about it. And I could hear, because he was chatting to people on the phone, although I don't speak Spanish, I could hear the names of players. I thought, this guy's a proper Real Madrid fan. And so he said to me when he dropped me off, he said, so why did you come to Madrid? And I thought, I can't tell him <laughs> because I was literally outside the building where I was going to be interviewing Beckham. And I just thought, if I tell him that, there's no way he's not going to come in with me. And, Invite um, all his mates. So I came up with some ridiculous answer and he drove off thinking I was, I was mad. But that was quite, that was quite funny. And I remember getting on, you know, it was a big thing to get a, a Beckham interview. It always is. But in those days, particularly 2006, I remember getting on the, 
plane afterwards with the tape machine with the interview on and sort of feeling like I'd gone and got some sort of Harrison Ford Raiders of the Lost Ark type sort of trophy. And what was he like? I haven't met him. He's a nice guy. I've interviewed him three times and it was interesting this time he was so different. The first two times it was right in the height of his fame, 98, around the time he got sent off for England and, you know, when he was still in the early days with Victoria. Yeah, then you really saw the weight it had on him. He almost walked around with the weight on his shoulders and everything you asked him, you watched his mind whirring, like looking for the agenda, looking for the problem, looking for the issues that would arise from this question, which... You know, you sort of expect, but it just... I felt sorry for him the first couple of times, I thought it just... It, suddenly his life didn't look that glamorous. But then the third time, you know, when he was getting near, I think, towards retirement, it was he was just so much different and, he, you know, he was laughing. And, you know, I, I sort of... I have a habit when I interview really, really famous people or people who I really, really admire or both, I'm really rude to them. Partly because I had this fear in my head, like, don't go in and suck up to them. Don't do that. That would be really bad. That would be really unprofessional and just cringeworthy. But do you go a bit too much in the other direction? Well, I, I risk it. But luckily, the people I've done it, the main ones I've done it with was him and Dennis Bergkamp, who I worked with for two years. And, I mean, Dennis Bergkamp was like a, a footballing god to me. And suddenly my job was to follow him around for two years, running his website, ghostwriting and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, I used to be really, really rude to him. But he knew, you see, he knew from the start, before he even met me, they said, this guy is a massive Arsenal fan who's going to be running your website and you're his favourite player and all that. So he, and he knew what his stature was. He knew was. you were playing hard to get, really. Yeah, well, he knew it was the ultimate compliment in a way. It was kind of like, I'm so in awe of you that I'm actually going to be rude to you, you know. So you're a huge Arsenal fan. You've written yeah. books about Arsenal as well. Yeah, yeah, I wrote for several years. I wrote uh, their books, yeah, the books for the clubs. So that was lots of fun. And yeah, huge Arsenal fan. Travelled with them a bit. I remember the 1995 European Cup Winners' Cup final against Real Zaragoza, and this was in Paris. What an eventful trip. In short, we lost the match because in the last minute, a former Spurs player chipped David Seaman from the halfway line, one of the most physically remarkable goals ever scored. And this was someone who played for our big rival Spurs previously. We got attacked and tear-gassed and fenced in by Parisian riot police. We overslept and I nearly missed a train. I had to be back for an exam the next day at college and we'd set it all up and then we overslept and we had to sprint through Paris to get to the Eurostar. And I had my first, let's say, liaison with a member of the same sex while I was over there as well. So that was a hell of a trip. Bit of a memorable one for you. Yeah, funny thing is though, Everyone says it's like the worst match ever for Arsenal because, but I love there's a part of me that loves a really, really awful result for Arsenal, especially when I'm there. Why? Because they're, they're so, I mean, lots of people love a really awful result for Arsenal. Like yeah. Spurs, Manchester United. What is it about losing? Well, I suppose what I'm saying is I'd rather we, always rather we won, obviously, as an Arsenal fan. But what I mean is I think if we're going to lose, I want it to be a complete and utter disaster. I want us to play awfully. I want there to be... I don't want injustice involved. I don't want us to lose because of a bad ref. I want us to really deserve it. I want it to be literally as if 11 like corpses have been out there playing for Arsenal. That's happening quite a lot recently. Well, there was one recently. Yeah, up at Wembley recently, (laughs) we lost to Manchester City and I've never seen a team, an Arsenal team, so outclassed. I just felt almost guilty because I was in the end of the Arsenal fans, obviously 40,000 odd of, of us, every single one of them tormented and depressed and despairing and me just sitting there going there's something really awesome about this I just love that emotion that kind of you really get to see how how people relate to it 
you know, the people who literally will be fed up for a month because Arsenal have lost. And I, I still, I suppose I've had periods like that in the past, but I've never quite had that. I, I just have the joy when we win. I don't have the, the equivalent despair. So, That's but, good. People yeah. get very, very upset about their team losing. They do, yeah. So more travel questions. Now, you're, I don't know if this is a comparatively recent thing, but you've been writing a lot recently about veganism mm. because you are a vegan. And that must be quite complicated. I mean, I don't eat meat and I haven't eaten meat for 18 years. But when I travel, I eat fish because it's just, mm-hmm. it's just easy. And I know I'm making excuses. I found a lovely quote from you in an article you wrote recently, I think for The Guardian, that said, yes, being vegan does make me a better person. And deep down, I think you know it. <laughs> and I, I do. I, yeah. I think I know it. I know that I should be vegan. I'm a vegetarian mostly, but I should be vegan. And I think it does make you a better person. And I think that's what makes people, people that are passionate meat eaters, I think that's what makes them hate vegans. Yeah. Because people do hate vegans. And I, I think it's yeah. just such a ridiculous thing because vegans are doing great things for animal welfare, for the planet, for so many reasons. I haven't quite asked you a question yet, but I guess my question is about the veganism and travel. Is that difficult? Well, personally, I've not, because it's, I was vegetarian for years and then I, I went vegan about 18 months ago. I've not really traveled much during that time, but I, I do speak to a lot of vegans and it's, it's easier than you might think because there's an app called uh, Happy Cow, which is kind of, you just log into whatever area you're in or you tap in the postcode of an area you're going to go to or whatever and it will bring up all the different options vegan options so restaurants cafes supermarkets that either are vegan or have good vegan ranges and then there's a book called vegan passport which the vegan society do which has you know like you can be in any country in the world and if all else fails you just pass that page to a waiter or something and it will explain to them sort of what you eat if it comes to that and what you don't eat and then there's one called veggie planet which does a similar thing so from vegans i've spoken to who travel a lot they all say it's it's very easy and in fact israel would probably actually be one of the easiest for all sorts of reasons that probably be a fascinating tv program actually about why veganism is so massive in israel and it's massive among holocaust survivors as well well um, there is a a whole lot to say about that which tells its own story but um so it is easy. The place where it is difficult in the travel experience is airlines are not catching up very fast. So sometimes people have to take their own stuff. But I always come to the same thing with any challenge with veganism. Veganism is a lot, e- a lot easier than you think it will be when you're not a vegan. But that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. And I think sometimes vegans have this sort of advocacy tendency to say, oh, no, it's really, really easy. There's no, you know, there's no challenge at all because they don't want to put anyone off. But there are sometimes challenges and travel would be one of them. The way you make it work is you just in my opinion, you just have to remind yourself why you do it. And if you do it vegan for the animals, as they say, so you're doing it for that reason, for ethical reasons, then there's not going to be any problem. Like if you have to have an awkward conversation with a waiter or whatever, I mean, that's not much compared to, you know, what a factory-farmed animal sort of goes through. And how I went vegan was actually during an overseas trip. I run the Dublin Marathon three times, and it's a really, really good marathon. Dublin, great, great city. And it's a great marathon. It's the only marathon I've run, but the level of support along the way is immense. You know, the Irish know how to cheer people on. Uh, You know, they don't muck about. And so you've got 26.2 miles of Irish people just cheering you on from the side. And I was vegetarian at the time, and I was running for a ethical, well, it calls itself an ethical, I have different opinions on it now, but dairy called Ahimsa, Ahimsa milk, which what they do is, because in my opinion, mainstream dairy is like the worst 
part of the whole you know, whole meat and food and drink industry. But for him, so in as far as you can produce milk ethically, they get as close to that as you can get. And I was running to raise funds for them because I was just vegetarian at the time and I was trying to hang on to my milk and my cheese. So I thought, well, I, rather than going vegan, I'll try and make it that they're better. At the end, as I finished my 26.2 miles, having run for a dairy, at the end of a marathon, you fall into the arms of whoever crosses the line with you, normally a stranger. And it was this old American guy. And as we pulled away, his T-shirt said, vegan runners. I said, oh, are you a vegan? And he said, yeah, man. And I said, oh, vegans are really cool. He said, oh, you're a vegan too? I said, no, no, I'm vegetarian. And he said, well, why aren't you vegan? And I said, well, I couldn't run a marathon if I was vegan. And he just went, dude. I'm about 20 years older than you and I've just run a marathon in front of you. I run seven marathons a year and I'm a vegan. Go vegan. So I went back to the hotel with my medal and Chris met me there. I said to him, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm going vegan. And he burst out laughing and I said, what's so funny about that? And he said, so, to get this straight, you ran a marathon to raise funds for a dairy in the morning and you're going vegan in the afternoon. He said, only you could do that. But that's how it started, yeah. I love that though, that a chance encounter at the end of a marathon yeah. with an American who presumably you never spoke to no, again. I'd love to be changed, in touch with him, yeah. Changed your life. It did, yeah, it did. And I really like, I, I do, I am into signs and things like that. And I do think, you know, the moment when you cross the line at a marathon, it's, it's a moment in your life, a big, big moment in your life. And so anything that happens there, in my opinion, has been, has been sent. It is, it's happening there for a reason. It's not that you're talking to somebody when you're bored on a bus and they mention they're vegan. This is like in your most intense emotional state, someone looking you in the eyes and saying, go vegan. That person's been sent to make you go vegan. You know, um, we have a lot of American listeners. Maybe we could try and find him. What do you remember about him? I had, I seem to remember a grey, stubbly sort of beard. I would guess he would be late 50s, early 60s, and he ran the 2017 Dublin Marathon. No, the 2016 Dublin Marathon. And he finished in... Oh, now I'm going to have to reveal my finish time, which was not good that year. Um, for about four hours 20. It's not so, bad, actually, yeah. is it, really? And he was running for... I don't know if he was running for anyone, but he had the Vegan Runners T-shirt on. Of the, it's like runners. a running club. You know, it might be that he even lives in Dublin. Who knows? That would be really fun if we found him, because yeah. he did actually change your life. So before I ask you my last couple of questions, where else have you travelled, and what other travel stories do you have for me? Well, I remember as a kid, some, like, you know, all quite comical. We went to Mallorca, and I wanted to buy something from a shop, like a, a pen or something. Like, you know, like a little souvenir, and I remember... <laughs> Sort of waving it in a guy's face. I didn't know. I was very young and I was English. Probably more the latter. I didn't know how to ask him how much this was. And my mum said, it was, and my brother, he still reminds me of it to this day, that I ended up just waving it in his face and going, how are you muchy? That is so embarrassing. But, you know, and even more embarrassing when you think there were probably adults who were that ignorant. Like, how do you say how are you muchy? In the language, oh, you just say how we match each. Just say, say it louder, I think, yeah, with, yeah. A strong, with a strong foreign accent, indescript foreign accent. That's just right. say it as loud as you can. <laughs> Have you learned any languages since? No, not really. No, good old Brit. And then America, many trips to America. And me and Chris, yeah. when we had our civil partnership in 2008, we kind of honeymooned over there. We'd been several times before, but that time we went to LA, San Francisco, Las Vegas, and Washington. And we were in America. Like anyone who wanted to give us a present, we just said, just give us money for this trip. So we managed to have a really nice trip, stay at nice hotels, and you know, get hire cars to drive around and see things. And I loved that trip. But interestingly, Washington really, really didn't do it for me at all. And I was really, really not disappointed because I still enjoyed being there. But I was really surprised by just how sort of boring I found it. L.A. we loved, you know, driving along by the beach. It was unseasonably warm because it was at the end of the year. So it was like sort of more like L.A. summer weather, which was nice. 
And yeah, we've loved our trips around America, but it's weird. We were talking the other day, we were just like, you know, I've always liked, you know, the American people I've met. But now when I think about it, I think of this sad, sort of divided, sort of bewildered country where you've got largely, I guess, two sets of people. You've got, you know, the people who are sympathetic towards Trump and then the people who aren't, who must just be so sad. I mean, I cringe when I think about Brexit, let alone what they must think about Trump. So... It feels like we are both the US and the UK. I mean, things are calming down a little bit now because we're all, I think, learning to just live with it. But it does mm. feel like that we are very much divided countries, yeah. you know, particularly with Trump and anti-Trump and the States and Brexit and anti-Brexit. And for those of us who were on the losing side of both of those ideologically, then it, it ha- has been a very sad time, I think. And actually, there's something called the Trump slump in the visitor numbers to America have gone down, mm. noticeably so. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I used to get very inspired by America. I remember when we used to go to New we went to New York several times, and it might sound odd, but literally just the height of all the buildings, not just the skyscraper, the famous skyscrapers, but everything was so tall that it would make me feel inspired because I'd think, you know, like, look at the, the scale of things, look what's possible, and then I'd go home and I'd, I'd be more inspired to work, to come up with good ideas for articles or books and stuff. But It hasn't changed. The, the fabulous things are still mm. there. And on the day-to-day level on the street, you know, they're still there. The wonderful cities, the people, the food, the vibrancy, the culture. I'm going to say nestling, gem, ah, yes. city of contrasts. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all still there. It's got a park and a roundabout. <laughs> a city and of contrast. Presidents come and go. You know, they do, yeah. Know, so. And what we've also got quite into recently is just travelling around Britain. Uh, we've got really, really into it. It's partly because both self-employed and when you're self-employed, well, you know what it's like. It's like it's hard to predict your income, how it's going to be, and therefore small trips, just getting a hire car and just driving off somewhere, uh, is much easier to plan than big trips, which you know you might not know what your work situation is going to be like in three months or whatever. But go to your neck of the woods, Brighton, obviously a lot, Bath, Oxford. Uh, we love the Cotswolds as well. Just drive out just for a day, go around, see different places. I sort of drive Chris a bit mad because when we go somewhere I like, uh, that we enjoy, I want to keep going back there like a genuinely unhealthy amount. I'll be like, can we go back? And then we'll go back. And then he'll be like, yeah, we've done this now. And I'll be like, can we go like every month for four years and all that? And he he has to kind of ration me down to, I was going to say to some sane level, but it's still probably not that sane. But, you know, when I like someone, I love going back over and over. I I love Brighton Pier. I know it's weird, but I loved it all my life. I just love that place so much. And if I had my way, we'd just get a hire car every day and go there every day. And I'd probably get sick of it after about a year. And I think that there's a bit of an old an old git side in me, to be honest with you. Chris sometimes says, he says, it's, I've got lots of different characters and ages, like, and he never knows which one I'm going to wake up as. There's like a sort of a stomping, angry 13-year-old boy. There's a sort of a girl who likes ponies or whatever. And then there's an old git as well. And I think the old git in me likes going out on day trips around Britain. The girl with the pony is the one that cuddles cows. I like those photos that you've posted (laughs) on social media about cuddling another cow. I am not a vegan. thought of what cows go through Mm. for milk and cheese just absolutely horrifies me, but not enough to have stopped having Mm. it already. And we all draw the line somewhere, don't we? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right, yeah. I mean, there's no blameless existence. I probably trod on numerous little insects, you know, on the way here. Do you know what I mean? There's no... On purpose. There's, yeah, yeah, that's why I was late, yeah. <laughs> 
uh, my last question. Oh, very quickly before my last question, you're a Buddhist. No, you're no, not. I'm not. Oh, no, okay. No. I don't know where I got that. <laughs> no, no, I get, I do get, I get called a Buddhist a lot, but yeah, no, I do go to the uh, Krishna temple near here. But Hinduism. That's not, yes, yeah, that's like a branch in a way of, of Hinduism. So I do go there, but and I do do a lot of yoga and. Yeah, and meditation. Have you been to India to that's find yourself? The, that is the funny thing, because I haven't. A lot of people go, and then that's how it sort of happens. Chris has been many times, and we're definitely planning that. Our next big trip is definitely going to be to India. He went, he's been two or three times to sort of test out where he thinks I'll like and not. But uh, there is that danger with me if I go there that You'll I'll keep going never there. come back. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely keep going there. Yeah. It's hard work, India. My, my, my dad's family are Indian, Indian Fijians and, and Hindus as well. But anyway... That's uh, by the by. My very last question is about music because I always love to ask people this because one day I will get this podcast sponsored and we'll be able to afford to play the Uh song I'm about to ask you about. But to me, music and travel goes hand in hand because music often inspires you when you're on a journey or traveling or on a beach or in a great nightclub in Tel Aviv, as it might be. If you had to pinpoint one song that has given you a magical moment that music can do when you've been traveling what would that song be i think the track holiday from real by jack's mannequin a very underrated band and when we were in la that time i was telling you about you know for our honeymoon i remember we were driving around la particularly up and down the coast um you know down to uh malibu and places and we were blasting out you know with the roof back blasting out that album by Jack's Mannequin, and it just works perfectly. You know, it's about LA in parts. Don't think I know it. No, no, no. They're, they're, no. they're massively, massively underknown. But well, the it's first great... guest that's come up with a song that I don't know. <laughs> they're kind of pop, pop, punky type thing. You know, like you know, there's loads of those American bands like Wheatus and stuff like that. They're that sort of sound. But yeah, Holiday from Real, great track. And every time I listen to it, I'm right back there. I will dig it out and play it. I, the one thing I love about being in places in America one one of the many things I love is that you you can drive to LA and you can be driving down Mulholland and you're singing Tom Petty you can Mm. be you know seeing the city lights and thinking about Bob Bob Seger you can there's so many areas and so many songs written about all these fabulous areas and New York as well a similar thing and I do always do that I look I make a playlist before I go so when I was up in Israel yeah I had like a playlist of songs about Kabbalah when I went up to Safed and stuff and yeah, I definitely, I think that it's great to actually, to, to mix the two. Marvellous, that's it, lovely, thank you. Unless you think I've missed anything? No, I think Marvellous. that's Marvellous, lovely. Thanks so much, Chaz, I really enjoyed that. And also to Azimuth Post-Production in London Soho for the use of the studio. Thank you so much for listening. We now have listeners in over 70 countries and 35 different US states, and it is very much appreciated. See you soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.